Okay. First things first, Bill, thanks for your time. I appreciate you're a very busy man, so thank you for taking the time today. Pleasure. For someone reading this who is unfamiliar with the concept of sports psychology, and as someone who is trying to become one, often when I tell people what I do, it's met with, what's sports psychology? So for, <laughs> so for our readers who are unfamiliar with sports psychology, what is sports psychology, Bill? Well, there, there are four contests within a football match. For Within the match itself, each team is trying to dominate physically. Each team is trying to dominate technically, skill levels. Each team is trying to dominate tactically, get the advantage of players in space and two versus ones, etc. But each team is also trying to dominate the other mentally. So sports psychology is helping coaches, athletes and teams achieve a winning state of mind, a, 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 a state of mind that allows them to maximize on their physical, technical and tactical skills. How exactly, from your perspective, do you teach people to develop or co-create, maybe might be a better word, uh, a winning mindset? Well, the first stage for me is to look at what is a winning mindset for your, your game, your team, for you? What puts you mentally and emotionally in the best situation to play your best performance? So we, we, we discuss what is the best mindset? What are we trying to achieve? The second thing we look at is what can get in the way of that mindset? What barriers, what obstacles? When have you played your best games? When have you played your worst games? What was the difference? What gets you out of control, not operating efficiently mentally? Uh, and then we look at some of the strategies we might use together to get to that winning mindset. So it's a process, uh, but the step one is convincing the athlete or the team or the coach that attitude really is important. It's a power driver. You, we talk about the physicality of players, but players don't operate physically unless they have an attitude to, to training, to weightlifting, to doing the right things, to good sleep, to good nutrition. So attitude comes into everything players do. Obviously, you began as a basketball coach, a successful one. It has to be said, you won a gold medal at the Commonwealth Games. How or why did you get involved in psychology? Well, that came from the basketball, actually, because I coached all over the world and I coached in some very high-pressure games. And as a coach, I started off trying to recruit talent and being dominated by talent. But the more I coached, the more I became influenced by attitude. Which players were good at the end of the games when the pressure was there? Which player would take the big shot, the money shot, the final shot of the game to win or lose? Which players wouldn't take that shot? Who could I trust? Who's, who stepped up in the arena? Who stepped down? So that began to dominate my thinking. I studied psychology at university. And so I began to put the two things together and uh, thought there's something missing here from our coaching in this country. So I decided I would uh, investigate. Do you think being a coach first helped you in the sense that you had a kind of appreciation of the pressure, you had an understanding to some extent? Enormously, enormously. 
um, I think it gave me, you're quite right, Jim, it gave me an empathy, a sensitivity towards players. But I think, it, importantly, it gave me the language of sport. It gave me the language of the dressing room, the language of the players, the language of the coaches. I understood what they were going through. I understood the, the way I could get to them. I think you, you can present the greatest sports psychology lecture in the world and players, it'll leave players dead. They won't, they won't be interested. But if you change that and get into their language and talk about what they consider to be important, you can get through to them. So I knew how to get through to players. I knew how to present to players in their language in ways that they would understand. I want to jump to United. Of course, this is United Magazine. We share that we're interviewing people and the fans send in their questions. So as you can imagine, we have a lot of United questions. Um, how did your move to United come about, Bill? Um, it came through Steve McLaren. I was at Derby County working with Jim Smith was the manager, Steve was the assistant, I was the sports site. And uh, we've been there four or five years, done very well. And within the space where we played Manchester United on the Tuesday night, Alex was very impressed with the tech, our tactics and Steve explained to them after the game why he'd done what he did. We drew 1-1. And uh, within the next week, Steve was at Manchester United. And it was two-thirds of the way through the season, I think, something halfway through the season. And I stayed at Derby. Uh, and at the end of the season, Steve had a word with Alex and said, should we take this guy? And Alex said yes. So did you have a meeting yourself and Alex? Or was there a meeting, you, Steve, and Alex? Uh, no, I had, a, I had an interview with Alex. Um, I, I got the phone call 10 o'clock Saturday night. Um, come in tomorrow morning for a chat, Sunday morning, 7 o'clock. Alex had just come out of the gym. It was at the training ground. And we sat in his office and he, he poured some tea and he asked me, how do I keep my team number one? And thank God, Jimmy, I knew the answer. So I got lucky on that occasion. I just said, think, train and behave every day like you're number two. And he loved that. And I think that was, that was the interview over. I was gone in five minutes and started the following Monday. Train like you're number two. Pretty, pretty powerful. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a back to that thing about attitude. When you get to number one, don't take on the attitude of being number one. Stay in the attitude of being number two. There's some team out there that's trying hard to beat you. There's some player out there that's trying to take your position. Think number two, and that means you'll keep your, 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 your training and your preparation up to top level. Number one, thinking number one is the key, is, is the, the leading to a complacency. Of course, at that time, there were some big names at the club. Were the players wary at first? Were they receptive? Did you have to win them over? Or I think they were wary. Um, I think at that time, it was very, I mean, wasn't quite as bad as Derby when my players ran the other way down the corridor when they saw me coming. Um, I think psychology at that time was, was something players were wary of. But there was, one of the reasons the United players were there was their determination to be the best. And so I found they had a view. They operated, the squad there was fantastic. They operated 
a minimum of about 90% performance. But they would listen to me and talk to me if they thought I could give them another 1%. If I could take them to 91 or 93 to 94 or 95 to 96, if they could get an extra 1% by working with me, they would work with me. That was their dedication to being the best. I'm a big believer in 1%. That's something they always tell players that the work they do with me won't guarantee them a 10 out of 10 performance, but it might turn a 6 into a 7 or a 4 into a 6. And sometimes that might be the best you can do on that given day. So I'm a big believer in 1%. Yes, it, it's, 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 it's very, it's, it, 1% is an attitude. It's an attitude to getting the best out of yourself. I mean, there are occasions, Jim, in my career where I've worked with a player and shifted him 10% because he's just been a, a complete change in his, his approach to the game and how he sees himself. Uh, and for that player, that's been a massive change. Um, but I think when you reach the level of Manchester United, any conversation other than 1% is, is not, not on. You mentioned Derby County there, the idea of a player running the other way. I suppose the perception of psychology, when players hear psychologists, they think Freud or men in suits and lying on a couch, I suppose. Generally speaking, how do you navigate that resistance? Well, you build relationships. You don't push it when you go to a club. You, you don't force yourself on the players. Um, I think just being around and breaking down the stereotype and, and seeing that, oh, he's a normal guy. He's, he's quite a good guy. He laughs and joins in. And he chats. He, I would collect the balls at the end of a session or do something to help. So they, you know, they thought, well, he's an ordinary guy. Um, and I, I was, another advantage I had, it's not an advantage now, Jim, because I'm an old man now, but the advantage I had when I went to United was I was 55. And so I had some respect to being, I was similar to Alex, actually, similar age, to, and I had some respect from being a senior person. Um, but, but I think you build relationships and you don't try and force your agenda on the players you build a relationship and then you let the, the the agenda develop from there. What was your daily role at United? Were you like a fly on the wall? Would you observe training and then report observations back to Alex? Or Well, mostly with, mostly with Steve. I, I would observe, as you say, um, from being, with, being within. I was very fortunate in the sense that coaches look at technical things they, they're absorbed in training we're looking at balls and bibs and cones i look at people so i would watch my my office overlook the uh, my desk actually i shared with tony colton the goalkeeping coach that was another experience by the way um and my office overlooked the players car park and i would see a player that came in for a 10 30 start at 9 30 the nevels a player that came in at 10.29 for a 10.30 start. I would observe attitude, clues to attitude. Um, and I would look at general mood and morale, coming off a defeat, coming off a big win, three games in a week, weather was bad. Um, so I would talk to Steve about, and the coaches about, maintaining mood and morale, what the players needed, uh, where their attitude was, what would perhaps might be a good suggestion for a meeting. Uh, and I would also pick out individual players. So I remember 
one 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 guy who was a really 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 good guy um, but he was listless he was, his body language was poor and i just noticed him because i was looking at the players and i just happened to say to him on the way back from the training field everything okay son and he told me his father was dying back home and he, he was stranded and he, he wanted to be with him and he felt he couldn't because of his contract. And of course, the club dealt with that brilliantly once I alerted him to it. So that's the kind of thing I would do. And be ready for incidents, crisis incidents, when, when something happens that's uh, difficult, helping people navigate through that. You mentioned the idea of a big defeat there and maintaining morale or making suggestions. What kind of things would you do to raise morale if, the, if there was a big defeat? Well, I'd look at the big picture, first of all. We didn't, we, we didn't have many defeats when I was there. It was, it, was, it was the best job I ever had. It was lovely. Um, Derby, was, Derby, we'd lose two in four, draw one, win one. Celebrate the wins because it's a good moment. And then keep the draw, keep the defeats in in in, in perspective. So I'd look at the big picture. A, a defeat for any coach or any team is a disaster. Nobody's going to go through the season unbeaten. So you have to look at the big picture. Sometimes you're going to get a bad day at the office, but it, it's, it, that's okay. You can deal with that in a league season, providing you get the attitude to come back the following game. If you get defeated and let that erode your attitude, let you, that erode your confidence, then you're really sinking. So I would watch for what I call downward spirals. What are the clues that I look for to say a team is going down in its, its attitude? What gets them back level? What takes them up again in an upward spiral? So that would be my, my role to look for that. You mentioned the Nevilles there, the idea of them coming in early. Um, to me, the Nevilles are examples of people who got the very best out of themselves. And I'm wondering, have there been instant instances in your career when you saw people with a lot more talent? I, I don't think the Nevilles would take offense to that because in, in interviews, they often do say themselves that they weren't the most talented. So I don't mean that in a negative way. Um, have you come across players who are incredibly talented, but their mindset was just not at it and they didn't maybe make the best of themselves? Oh, yes. You come across, uh, really, there's three categories of player. There's the player that gets A-grade talent and A-grade attitude. They're the gods. Very few of those. Absolutely A-grade talent, A-grade attitude. Then you come across A-grade talent, B-grade attitude. And they're the players that could do it, but don't, because they don't have the character, the, re the resilience, the toughness. They let you down. The, you watch them in practice and you think, God, he's terrific. He's in a game away from home when it's raining and he's been kicked, disappears. And then the third group is A-grade, a B-grade talent, A-grade attitude. And they, the Premier League's full of those, and the Neville's are great examples. Uh, B plus B plus talent, 
but A plus attitude, fantastic attitude, Gary especially, uh, competitive warrior. Uh, and they maximised on every opportunity they had. And they were worth the place in the team because of their attitude. What was Alex Ferguson like to work with? How much freedom did he give you? Oh, enormous. Uh, he was very good to work for. Um, as long as he felt you were making a contribution, a positive contribution. I mean, he didn't need me when he, when he took me to the club. But he, 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 he reckoned if I could give 1%, I was worth it. So... And as I said before, we were a similar age, so there's a respect there. Um, he, he, had, he did his thing and let me do mine. And that was that amount of trust. I, I really valued that trust he had in me. But he, he, I noticed when I had meetings with the players, he would slip in the back with his soup and his cup of tea or something. And he, he'd just listen five or ten minutes and he'd assure himself that it was stuff that he approved of. Uh, I, I think it was a big step for him to take me on. And Jim Smith at Derby before me, they were tough, tough traditional managers. But each of them had something about them that allowed them to, to move forward into new worlds, to take on new ideas. So I'm very grateful. What do you think was his biggest strength as a, as a leader of a group of people? Every day he gave three things. Every day, he lived it. Every day he gave three things. He gave direction. That direction was always be the best. Be the best. He gave momentum. He never stopped working. He kept the season running. Uh, so he gave direction, momentum. And the third thing he gave was standards of performance. He kept his standards very high and he wouldn't allow anybody to drop below that. So he was a massive influence in the club. He controlled everything, um, but he, he, he set what I call a winning mindset and he wouldn't allow them to move from that. I've spoken to a number of ex-players and they've, they've said that Ferguson was a master of psychology. You know, fair enough, he wasn't a psychologist in the sense of qualifications or whatever you might call it, conventional psychologist, but he knew what people needed. A particular time, some people needed a good shout at them. Other people needed a softer approach. So a lot of people have said in his own right, he was actually a master of psychology too. A lot of good coaches are. And, and, and to be honest, Jimmy, some of my best work has been working with coaches. Because if I... Coaches have massive influence over the players. They've got the power and authority to determine the team, transfers, whatever. So... If, and the coach talks to the players every day. So if I can influence the coaches, so very often I work on the, with the coaches and helping them understand psychology and helping them be a better coach and include psychology in their remit as a coach. And Alex, you, you do get more, with more experience, he was older then, with more experience and you do get wiser. And I think he, well, he, he I think it's, it's a fair comment to say he was a, he was a natural psychologist. Um, a tough one, but a natural one. Generally speaking, can it be difficult working as part of a multidisciplinary team, coaches, physios, you, the psychologist, everyone having their own separate objectives? It can be, but I, I rather like that challenge because I think one part of what I do 
is spread the word about what attitude, what mindset we're looking for from the players. Uh, I remember when I joined the Olympic swimming team, uh, I brought all the staff together, all the non-coaches. So the coaches got all the attention. The support staff, who were fantastic, were ignored. And I brought them all together. And I just asked them one question. I asked them each to think about it, then answer me within three minutes. And I said to them, how do you help our swimmers swim faster? So the physios, the doctors, the kit men, the analysts had to talk for three minutes about how they helped our players, our swimmers swim faster. And I did that at Manchester United. I talked to each member of staff about how do you help Manchester United win? Because if you don't, you shouldn't be here. And so you can create a, a mindset that goes across the club and that's very powerful. Obviously, a big aspect of your work is the notion of confidentiality. I'm wondering, at clubs, has there ever been times where managers would ask you the specifics of maybe a one-to-one -one <laughs> consultation? And how do, you, how do you explain, well, you know, I can't tell you that. How does that go down? <laughs> Not very well. Um, the more insecure a manager is, or the more psychologists knew. I remember Jim Smith after I saw the first player. I saw the first player and he stormed into my office gym and said, what do you say? What do you say? And so I had the interesting issue of not telling him. Um, the bald eagle was not happy. <laughs> so I, I think you, you, you get them used to it. And, and you, you, I've always reassured a manager that if there was something important that he needed to know i would find a way of telling him without breaking confidentiality so it might be that one player tells me something the second player tells me the same thing a third player tells me the same thing i might decide that's something the manager should know and it's up to me then to find a, a subtle way of telling him without naming any players you know, there's a feeling in the group that the training is too long on a Friday before game day. Now he needs to know that, but he didn't, he didn't need to know who told me. So. As you can imagine, I got a lot of questions about Roy Keane, particularly as I am an Irish man. So <laughs> a lot of my followers are Irish. What was Roy Keane like to work with? Lovely, difficult, challenging. Um, intense, focused, committed. He was A-grade talent, A-grade attitude. Uh, a fierce warrior competitor. I mean, there's very few players I call warriors. Players go up in stages, you know. Some players just turn up. Some players turn up to train. Some players turn up to, comp to, to compete. Some players turn up to win. Some players turn up to dominate. Roy turned up to dominate. Uh, he was challenging because he didn't take bullshit. Um, he questioned everything you, you said to him. He challenged it. But when you said something that was meaningful and he knew it was, then he was brilliant. He'd take that and he'd, he'd run with it. Um, I loved working with him.
obviously towards the end of Keane's time, there's the big fallout with Alex Ferguson. We all know that. We don't need to talk about that. That's out there in the internet. We often read how similar they are, though. As someone who worked with both closely, would you say that there are similar traits that they both shared? Actually, to extend that question further, are there similar traits that, in general, high performers or champions would share in your experience? Oh, yes, yes, yes. There's high performers, uh, extremely committed, uh, challenge themselves all the time, never, never accept poor mediocrity, never want to be average, um, always striving for the best, challenge the people around them to be the best, uh, hate defeat, um, tend to always see what they didn't achieve in the game rather than what they did. So, and it, it, it's true in many respects, Roy and Alex were very similar people, and that's maybe why they had some difficulties, because they are both winners, they're both warriors, and both were, were fantastic and fascinating to work with. Um, both both were very important to the success of United. Uh, a reader question here. What's your funniest memory of your time at United? Oh, that's a good question. Um, that's a very good question. I had some very funny moments. I mean, humour is so important when you're working in a stressful environment. You can get too serious. And the young men. And I think... Hard work can be fun. Paul Scholes was very funny. He had a very good dry sense of humour. Um, some of the humour I can't repeat. <laughs> you can let things get too serious. And I think that some humour is so important. They say that humour is like an instant holiday. It just, everything comes out and you relax. and Nothing seems so, so difficult. I'll have to think about that. That's a very good question. And, and I'm trying to think of one I can share. Maybe we'll come back to that at the end, maybe. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering how closely, or if at all, do you follow United now? Oh, I follow them. Um, I went out to my grandchildren to their first United game. Brilliant. Their first game of football. I took them this season. Um, and I still, I still see a lot of the United people. Um, we stayed friends and in, in contact. Um, but I, I, I'm, I follow all the teams that I've worked for. I'm very interested in how Derby do. I look at them in des despair at the moment. Carlisle United, I, I started with. I, I, I look at Carlisle. Middlesbrough, I look at. So... But I, I watch United on the television a lot. So I'm, 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 my family are Man United, so. As a follower of sports, taking off your psychologist's hat for a minute, what do you think has been the biggest problem for United recently as they try to kind of reclaim their position at the top of the Premier League? Well... If you study sports, and I study sports, and I've studied mostly American sports, um, creating a dynasty, which the Ferguson era was, it was a dynasty, it was something unusual. 
that length of time at the top, creating that is, is absolutely magnificent for a club, but it leaves it with a major problem. When the key to that dynasty retires, there is, you've climbed Everest, you've got to come down the other side. It's very difficult to continue that dynasty. And there's generally, in the history of sports, um, a, a collapse of systems and people because the lead is no longer there. And I think if, if you look at the history of sports, what's happening to United is not unusual because what happened to them with Ferguson was unusual to have that amount of time at the top. That was set such a high standard that somewhat of a collapse was always on the cards. Um, their, their task is to absorb the downside, rebuild. In a, they can't recreate Ferguson, but they can rebuild in many good ways and come back again and rebuild to another dynasty. But the problem with that, Jim, is a dynasty sets up expectations. So 75,000 people go on a Saturday to expect the level of performance that they'd seen under Ferguson, and then they won't get it. In order to rebuild, you've got to go down, go back to basics, fundamentals, and then take it bit by bit. But the United has not demonstrated the patience to do that yet. No, unfortunately not. I'm hoping uh, Eric Ten Hag is afforded some more patience and time. After we worked with England, the England team, Steve and I went to FC20 in Holland, and Eric was our assistant. So I've worked with Eric, um, and he's terrific. Great coach, no doubt about that. Great, hard worker, great coach, good, good guy. I think he'd be very wise to bring Steve with him. Steve has seen all aspects of English football. He's been a hero. He won his last Englishman to win a cup, I think, with the, Carib uh, what, the Carling Cup, it was called then, with Middlesbrough. Um, he's had disasters. He's, he's got sacked from England. So he's had a rich experience in English sport, and I think he could bring a lot to Eric to take the pressure off him, to allow Eric to coach while Steve looks at the environmental issues, the big issues around the club. So I think that would be a very good combination. What kind of an individual uh, is Eric? Can you tell us? Uh, I, I think I told you when I talked about Roy Keane and Alex Ferguson. Intense, committed, focused, hardworking. Doesn't hate, hates losing. No excuses. Um, thoughtful, intelligent. What, what, what he is, I, I would put Eric alongside Guardiola and Tuchel and that kind of Klopp as well. Klopp's more emotional. That kind of new manager that's bringing intelligence to our, our football, where the players are playing more intelligently, where they're playing more sophisticated, they're changing patterns and shape on the field. They're, they're playing a much more demanding mental, mentally game, a much more mentally demanding game. Eric's one of those. Um, 
he, he, he operates at a high level on the field of, of tactical sophistication. Just a few more questions, Bill, because I'm conscious of time. I want to move away from United a bit more into the specific nature of your work. Um, in terms of your one-to-one work in the intake process, if we can call it that, what are some of the first questions you would ask an individual coming to you seeking to enhance their performance? I have three standard questions, Jim. You can use these by all means. I ask the player, the athlete, the coach, what do you want? I want to know what they want. What do you want? And, and how often I've, in this, this room I'm sat in now, a player sat opposite me, I've said, what do you want? And they don't know. And if they say, I want to be the best player I can be, my second question is, how badly do you want it? Because I need to know the level of commitment, the level of motivation. And if they say, I want it terribly, I say, third question is, how much are you willing to suffer? Because all the greats I've worked with put so much work in suffer the defeats, the disappointments, the injuries, and keep going and, and rise to the top. Nobody rises to the top easily. There's always struggles. But these, these guys never miss a session. They, they turn up every day. They turn up to compete every day. That's challenging. They deal with the stress, the bad publicity, the missing the penalty that could have won the game. They, they, they deal with that and they come back. They're tough people. So those are the sort of questions asked players. But the key question is, what do you want? Often I find it's, it's funny. There's, they, they don't know what they want. No, they, no they've, they've not thought about it. They've, one, they've, not, they've no plan. One question I would ask is, um, from, a men, from a mental perspective, what are you trying to achieve here? Every time yeah. you step on the field, what are you trying to achieve? And it's, it's interesting. They don't know. It's a great question. Yeah, and they don't know. No, they, they've got no framework of thinking. Uh, it, I can understand it because if you, if you, if you, you've, you've got to understand the context of players. They suddenly show some talent when they were 12 and people got excited around them, but they were just playing. They were kids. They were playing. And they kept playing and, and the excitement was all around them, but they, they were unaffected. They just loved playing football. I just, just let me play football. And then when they're 14 or something, they might go to academy and suddenly people start giving them kit and things start changing. And parents get excited because they're going to make some money. They're going to get a five bedroom detached because the son's good at football. And all this is happening around them. And then slowly for a professional, it becomes a job. 18, 19, trying to break into the first team, dealing with the first big contract, a million pounds or whatever. It's terribly difficult for these kids, but it's so fast moving that very often they don't stop and think. They don't start to make a plan about their career. They've got no plan. It's just whatever their agent says and whatever their dad says. They don't think for themselves because it's just happened so quickly and, and, and the, the I think I describe it when a player sees me, I give him a mental timeout. I take him off the treadmill. And we have some, I very often go for a walk with players, say, we're not meeting 
in the office. We'll go for a walk. We just walk through a nice walk and, and, and chat. And it, I ask questions and because I never thought about that. I, I, I want players to take control of their own destiny, to take control away from the people around them and say, no, I control my own destiny because it's, it's their life and they've got to live with it after they've finished football. What did I do? What did I achieve? What do I want? Did I do what I wanted to do? Speaking of the idea of control and mental frameworks, I want to ask you about the concept of mistakes. So, mm. for example, a player makes a mistake. What kind of exercises would you do with a player or what kind of mental frameworks would you try and co-create with the player to ensure that when the player does make the mistake, they can stay present in the moment, they can maintain their intention and the mistake doesn't totally derail their performance? Yeah, very often I'd start, when I notice a player who makes mistakes and goes, goes backwards in the game, de deteriorates, I would start by showing them clips of players making mistakes in a game and then immediately making another mistake. And I'd talk about the, the damage done by, the damage done to the game and the team was not the first mistake, it was the second mistake. So the first mistake, you give up the ball in a dangerous area. The second mistake is you come back and clean out the player that's won it in your, in your anger and you give away a free kick in a danger or a penalty or you get yourself yellow carded or it's your second yellow card and you're off the pitch and you left your team with 10 players. So I would, I would look at the impact of mistakes and show them that the first mistake is often not the one that has the most impact. I also show them patterns of mistakes because I'd check, track them during some games. So if they make a mistake, if they do something good, I put a tick. And if they do something wrong, a mistake, I put a cross. If it's a very bad mistake, I put two crosses, very good, two ticks. And I would show them that how often a cross is followed by a tick and how often a cross is followed by another cross and then a double cross and, and the player's on a downward spiral. And some of that is because when we make a mistake, we're human, we feel emotionally unbalanced, we're angry. We're upset and we're determined to make it up. And then we'll, we've lost control of ourselves. So it's a matter of finding a way to get the player to keep control after a mistake, to, to have the initial flush of, oh, this is terrible. But then to come back quickly under control and composure. So I've often used the traffic lights. Green is go. When we're playing well, we're in green. Uh, when we make a mistake, we can go from green to red. We see red and then we get into trouble. But there's this lovely thing called amber in between, which means I've got a few seconds to decide whether I want to go into red or whether I want to stay into green. And I have one player playing who's, who has two elastic bands on his wrist. And when, he, when he's going into red, he snaps the elastic bands and it snaps him back into, I want to stay in green. So you can condition the thinking to make a mistake and stay in composure and control rather than lose it. I think that's a great point. It's trying to help players take control of their own performance as much as they can. That's, that's the key. That's the key. Not to be susceptible to emotional unbalance, loss of control, because that great players play in stressful situations. There will always be big issues, big incidents, big mistakes. But it's about staying in the game and coming out of the game a winner. 
I just have two more questions, Bill. I could sit here all day and pick your brain and mind, but I'm conscious of time. Um, as a sports psychologist, how do you promote player autonomy? Well, I think player autonomy is very important now because this generation is, is so different than the generations that have been before. Um, the, the traditional coach used to tell. The, the recent coach used to sell. The new coach consults. It's, it, it, you need to involve the players in the discussion about the performance because these players are used to, at school, being consulted, sitting around a table and being asked together to work together to collaborate. It's a collaborative society now with this Generation Z. And so coaches, there's a certain amount of stuff which I call non-negotiables, which the coach decides. But there's an awful lot of the agenda in football that could be shared with the players. And the players are intelligent. They, they play on the field. They know the situations. They know which shape works and which doesn't work, where to run, where not to run. So I, I do think that involving the players gives them a sense of ownership. And that gets a greater level of motivation. If you, if you feel you own something, you try harder to defend it, to make it work. I think the modern coach is very much uh, somebody who talks to the players, consults the players, and listens to the players, which is, would, would have been unusual 30 years ago. Might You mentioned asking certain questions to promote the autonomy. Might simple questions be related to training layout, for example, Absolutely. providing two or three choices of drills? Is that, is that something along the lines of what we're talking about absolutely i think any aspects of their development their performance um i remember derby county one of my first meetings with them i said what can you suggest that can help this team win more games and that's a really open-ended question yeah and they'd never been asked before they, they, they were shocked in the meeting and i had the flip chart ready and i, I split them into groups six in each group and I, I said the question today it boys is what can you suggest that can help this team win more games and the answers were terrific and in the afternoon i went through it with the coaches and the coaches were astounded and then i brought the manager in showed him and then we decided on some action and then by the following week i was able to meet the players again and say we've done that we've done that we're trying to do that the reason we can't do that is this. And they felt all of a sudden that they were an important part of the club. They were consulted, needed, cared for, listened to, appreciated. That made a big difference. Brilliant. Final question. Thank you once again for your time. It's been an absolute privilege to meet you. Okay. Um, do you have any advice for young aspiring sports psychologists like the likes of myself, the likes of my classmates who are training for their chattered status? Well, I think, as I said, it's very hard um, to get into the profession, but it is a growing profession. There are more opportunities. I think to work on, I, I, mean, I do see a lot of young sports psychologists come to see me. I try and help, but I ask them, what, what sport are you involved with? And they say, no, I'm studying. 
I know, but what, what sport are you involved with? You're studying sports, so what sport are you involved with? Well, I, I'm actually concentrating on university work. I said, well, that's not good enough. You've got to get, I don't care, it's under nines mini rugby team. But sports psychologists should be involved with a team, with an athlete, helping out, being around coaches, being in the dressing room when a team's been beaten, organizing players, listening to players, dealing with parents. I had a, a mound of that experience. I, I'd been an under eights mini rugby coach, I'd been basketball coach, I'd done it. Lots of work in all sorts of sports and, and all sports. Don't just focus on one person. Attitude covers all sports. It covers business as well. It covers education. I talk to business people and education people. So I think one piece of advice is get involved in sports, even if it's non-paid, if it's voluntary, even if it's kids and girls, soccer team, whatever, be involved in sports. Second thing is, work on your communication skills. Sports psychology is all communication. Um, and it, it's all about relationships. So be around people, be with people, learn to listen, learn to ask questions. People, players generally enjoy being with me because I ask them questions. I'm not telling them how I feel. I'm saying to them, how do you feel? What did you think of that? How could we do this? What's your plan for next week? And, and it engages them. So I, the other thing is keep, keep your second job, Jim, because it's going to be a while before you make any money. I'm finding that already. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, I say I, I, I waited till I was 50 and I, I retired as principal of a college and I had, a, I had the pension to keep my wife happy and my children fed. So, as I try and tell athletes, although sometimes it's hard to heed my own advice, it's about the process, not the outcome. Yeah, I so, know, but sometimes the outcome is bloody important. Yeah, so yeah. I'm trying to trust the process. One of the things, Jimmy, I would mention is that I do think I've done a lot of things in my lifetime and I've enjoyed all my jobs and you know, some very lucky, fortunate experiences. But being a sports psychologist has made me a better person. There's no doubt about it. And you talk about heeding your own advice, that's very difficult for anybody. But you can you spend so long working with other people about controlling the controllables, emotional control, reacting to a mistake, that eventually some of it rubs off on you and you find you become a, a much more rounded person. Bill, it's been an absolute privilege to meet you as someone who is aspiring professional and a United fan. Thank you so much for your time. All right, Jimmy, I'm happy to talk to you. Take care, Jim. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our latest episode. If you listen on an Apple device, please consider leaving a review and a five-star rating.